Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Love Tennis podcast where British tennis is booming and we're not afraid to talk about it. We've got so much to talk about today. Uh, We're going to say sorry to Cam Norrie because we've spent the last year talking about what his ceiling is and at no point did any of us discuss top 15 in the world or Masters 1000s tournament wins. So we'll uh, apologise for that. We'll also look at the women's final over in Indian Wells, Palabadosa and Victoria Azarenka involved in that one. Not so much Emma Raducanu, of course. Uh, we'll talk a bit about her coaching situation. She's got a trial period, and we all know how much Calvin loves those. Uh, there's more shoe problems for Norrie and for Murray, uh, and we'll discuss whether that defeats Zverev and the reaction to it, what that means for him going forward. And yes, we will talk Novak Djokovic, and yes, we will talk COVID-19 vaccinations. Um, but there is only one place to start for a British-based tennis podcast this week. Uh, in the early hours of the morning here in the UK, uh, Cam Norrie lifted the Indian Wells Masters title, his first ever Masters 1000 title, of course. The first British man to win Indian Wells, it might surprise you to learn. Uh, he came from a set and a breakdown to Nikolas Basilashvili as well, although in typical Nikolas Basilashvili style, he gifted him... Well, a lot of points in the uh, final set. I saw Simon Briggs of the Telegraph point out that it was the same number of unforced errors as if he had started every game 40 love up, which uh, is quite the gift. Um, George, uh, it goes without saying that none of us saw this coming at any point. Um, This is a massive achievement. Irrespective of what Cam does next, it's great just to have this, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've said this... uh hundred times I think this year about Cam Norrie that he, he just is permanently exceeding our expectations if you'd have told me at the start of this year Cam Norrie would be winning a Masters 1000 title two weeks after Emma Raducanu is going to win the US Open I mean I'd have laughed at you A because Indian Wells wouldn't be after the US Open but B it's, <laughs> you know, it's just totally nonsensical I mean we were, we've been sitting around as tennis writers for a long time talking about what a wasted opportunity Murray's era was where's this legacy where's it going and everyone felt like this was about to head for this well I suppose we have sort of been in a dormant period where okay Joe Conta has been doing fairly well but it's been a pretty disappointing last year and a half before this summer and then suddenly there's just all this positive positive action happening and, and Norrie it is almost as surprising as Raducanu to me in many ways, like because just he was so much more established on the tour. I kind of feel like, you know, Raducanu's the thing that she had in, in the bank, if you like, is the fact no one knew who she was. No one at tour level had seen her play. No one could have figured her out. And she's obviously very good. But Norrie's like been playing on the tour a few years now, never looked to me like he was going to ever be close to the top 10. And now he's in such a great position to be top 10. And, you're starting to think, is this guy going to stay there? Is it, he's just improving every week, getting better. It, it's a great story and a 
just a complete uh, ode to his character of how hardworking he is, I think, which is kind of the thing that sets him apart from other players because his game, still, I'm not convinced it's like that exceptional like compared to other players who are up there in the nicest way possible. I think what's really interesting about Cam and, and maybe what sets him apart to an extent from like the rest of the top 20, barring like Djokovic, Federer and Dahl, who we just live in a different universe, is that... I don't often remember or see Cam Norrie gifting people sets like he very. And I think, you know, that that's partly because he's had a brilliant year and he's got great confidence. He's superbly fit, but I feel like he's so even handed in the way he plays tennis and that very differently from the rest of the top 20, maybe he doesn't tank. I, I, that I can remember. I mean, someone may correct me, but I don't remember him, you know, absolutely binning off sets or matches and I can remember, I can I can remember specific instances of almost everyone else in the top twenty doing that this year. So that maybe it's just you know one of those things where he's had an exceptional year. Although you know we say he's had an exceptional year, he's had he's had you know downbeats as well. He had a pretty horrible summer on the on the hard courts where we thought he would go pretty well in, in America before this this run in Indian Wells. So you know it's not all been milk and honey. Um, Calvin, you of course know Cam very well and you've known him for a number of years and I know you've hit with him and been on court with him um, and we've talked before about him as a character and we've also talked before about how far we don't think he's going to go. Um, c- can you put your finger on what it is that makes him so difficult to play against rather than than, than kind of on this side of the net? Um yeah, he's very. He doesn't like you just said, James. He doesn't give points away. He doesn't give games away. You've got to beat him. You're not going to get any free games out of him. That kind of thing. He's going to serve. He serves pretty well, um, and he returns very well. And he doesn't miss many balls. And he has this sort of strange style with a backhand that's kind of like an underspin slice type drive backhand um, with no. He has no topspin on it. Um, and he has a forehand, so his backhand's really flat and and hits it. Comes through the court pretty quick, and his forehand's kind of the opposite. It's quite loopy. He tends to get it up, and and I think against certain types of players, that forehand's difficult to play against because he's a lefty. Um, and as we've discussed a couple of weeks ago, there's there's three or four of those lefty type players in the top 100 at the minute. But um, I think he combines that with with serving well. And I think the main thing is confidence. He's just riding on confidence. Mm. And again, and and I absolutely, I'm not wishing to take anything away from him in saying this. It's all about matchups as well. And he got pretty good matchups in Indian Wells, I think. I think that kind of, when I talk about his forehand like that, it's going to be a tough one for one-handed backhands to play against. Um, It's going to be, he he will have been over the moon to have come up against Bashalashvili because he'll know that if he makes enough balls, he's going to beat him. So I think it, it just, those sort of stars aligning, but absolutely not wishing to take anything away from him. He, he competes well. He works hard, he competes well, and that will get you a long way. Yeah, I mean, look, we've also got to, Calvin's right, let's put a bit of perspective on this, when you've got no Federer, Nadal and Djokovic playing this tournament, Medvedev and Zverev, who've been two fantastic hardcore players this year, who you back, basically wouldn't back against against anyone apart from themselves and Djokovic. So he's not had to come against any of these guys, which is obviously a great boost at a Masters event. And when you're thinking about where's he going to go next year in terms of, is he going to reclaim a Masters title? Probably not. He's probably not going to win mm. another one of these. I, don't, I wouldn't say. Um, but at the same time, if you look at his Grand Slam record this year, He's come against Federer, Nadal and Federer twice or two times against Nadal and once against Federer in three of the slams and then had Carlos Alcaraz first round. The slams. So there's actually quite a lot of potential for the biggest events now with a good seeding where he should avoid better players until you know fourth round quarterfinals. So there's decent point potential there that should, in theory, kind of negate what you'd imagine this would drop to around like 300 points mm. elsewhere. But... Um, yeah, I mean, so again, echo what Calvin's just said there. I mean, you can't, you can only beat what's in front of you and draws do open up and it's about who takes advantage of them. And, you know, mm. Calvin and he didn't go all the way. You know, he was in great form. He beat Medvedev and Norrie's then beaten him two and four. He's beaten Schwartzman for two games. Which yeah. doesn't give you easy points. Schwartzman's typically pretty, uh, 
gritty and tough and he's battered him. So although he did not I mean Schwartzman did not play well in that match. No, he did not. <laughs> in, in, in fairness. But you're right, you're right. I mean there are no easy wins against Diego Schwartzman typically. Um Calvin, I was just going to ask you, you kind of outlined his tactical game plan there and how Cam plays. And I I have only really recently started to appreciate the the utter contrast between the backhand and the forehand. I mean, I can't think of many players whose two wings are quite so different. Maybe Nick Kyrgios, because he hits a similar kind of bunting flat backhand. But is it hard to rally against someone when you can have one ball that's coming completely flat and one ball that's coming, you know, rasping and, and top spinny? It, it, does it, is it genuinely difficult to hit rhythm against? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's kind of a way that you would try and break someone's rhythm anyway. You try and give them different paces, different spins, and he has it naturally. Mm. But it's also within that, his backhand is a hard one to hit because, again, you don't get that backhand from many other players. You can't practice against somebody. You, you're going to have a, a, a practice block or a training block somewhere. You're not going to come across many people with left-handed backhands like Cam Norris. Mm. And that kind of thing. So the players, they don't often come against it very much. And and just expanding on what I was saying there and what George was saying, it's not just about quality of player that he's come against. It's against it's about styles as well, what he's managed to come against. And I think he's like, I might be wrong, but, and this again, I feel like I'm having a pop here and I'm really not, but um, <laughs> it's no criticism of him, but I think his record against like the top five in the world isn't great or, or top even top top eight maybe because I know he, he, he lost pretty badly to Casper Ruud the other week didn't he and mm. uh, and but then again whose record is good against the top eight in the world to well be yeah I mean, he's got he's got three wins against top eight players uh yeah. Isner on clay Rublev and uh, and team I mean team on clay which is a heck of a win so yeah you're absolutely right he doesn't have a, a great record in in those matches just going back to what you were saying about the, the different balls, James, I remember quite famously a bit of a, um, a quote about Djokovic on this because a few people have been like wondering, well, you can, you can tell obviously just looking at it, like what makes Federer great? You know, he's got this very sleek movement, really quick shots. And, he, you know, he's hitting winners. You can see the spin on the Nadal forehand and the power that comes with that. And, you know, there's a bit of a conversation I remember years ago, someone was having where they talking about, well, it's less... A, you know, aside from Djokovic's great physicality, it's less obvious with his balls that he's hitting what's so good about them. And uh, there was one player, I can't remember who it was now, but it, they said, it's the fact that every single ball he hits to you is a different spin, a different pace, a different everything. And it's mm. it's that impossibility to get rhythm against someone who's also striking it so deep and wonderfully that is, you know, makes it really tough. So for Norris to have something like that in his, in his locker, that other guys are viewing like that is a um, pretty big weapon to have. So mm. I'll tell you something quite interesting um, that I found out this week, kind of on on what Calvin was saying about um, how difficult Cam is to play against and how awkward he is. Um, he's going to Vienna for the um, Erstebank Open, which starts on Sunday. And I happen to know that on Saturday, he's hitting with Grigor Dimitrov and Carlos Alcaraz, um, both of whom have obviously played him this year. Uh, Dimitrov, who who will have lost to him, you know, a couple of days ago, and I, I kind of wonder whether, and I know Cam, for example, was at the Labour Cup as a, a hitting partner, um, and I guess a reserve maybe as well, and I, I do wonder whether there are guys queuing up now, going, crikey, I might have to play Cam Norrie in a pretty major match at some point. I'd quite like to understand what the hell he's doing. I don't know whether players even think like that, Calvin, but it, it just struck me as quite interesting that that was two people he's hitting with, or maybe they just like him. Yeah, I think it's more that. I think, like, I mean, those guys that have practiced, they, it won't be an unknown to the to anyone in the top 100. They'll practice with him. They all practice with each other regularly. Yeah. Um, and I think he probably just gets on with those guys. Or, or a lot of the time, it's just it's just random who you practice with. You don't... Yeah, not many players specifically try and practice with a certain player, I don't think. So I've got a bit of a, a question for you both and one we could maybe have as a prediction for next year. What's Cam Norrie's ranking by the end of 2022 so we think he's probably going to be pretty close to top 10 this year what's his ranking that's a really good question because it's actually you've kind of given me a bit of a leg up on that because as you say he's not actually defending loads of points you know he's not defending loads of slam points for example so there is room there he's defending lots of points that he probably won't defend well like 
he's not going to play Lyon again, maybe, because it, it won't be in the right part of the, the calendar and, and he probably won't get to the final of Queen. I don't know, he might. Um, I'd say somewhere around about where he is now, I think, on that. He'll probably pick up some wins in the slams um, and that will counterbalance him maybe not winning Indian Wells again. But yeah. uh, maybe maybe a little bit higher because the seedings will the seedings will help him out. He's not going to get any of the top eight in the world until the fourth round of slams or the third round of Masters series. There's also some absolute rubbish in the top 20 at the moment with the greatest, not rubbish, but like, you know, <laughs> I think, is Gail, Monf- Gail Monfils is still in the top He's 20? He's come into a bit of form though recently. He's, yeah, he, that's just fair enough. And he's same with a lot better. Dimitrov hung around in the top 20 for a while and then dropped out and then started playing well again. I mean, like, without looking at the rankings, I assume David Goffin is still number nine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I always assume David Goffin is Goff- actually... Down to 36 now. Got tenure yeah. in the top 10, hasn't he? Like, just... <laughs> I mean, we, we joke about Goffin there, but he's actually someone I kind of would compare Norrie to now, that the challenge for him is to stay where he is first and foremost. You know, I, I still do doubt Norrie's capabilities to suddenly start challenging Medvedev, Zverev, Sissipas, Djokovic and, you know, Rafa. At, at the biggest events and start beating those guys regularly. Maybe that's me downplaying his ability, but I still think that that's a big challenge for him to go and do consistently. But someone like Gopan does keep himself up there, keeps himself well-seeded. You know, that in itself is pretty tough. And other guys are going to want to start beating him now, viewing him as a close top 10 player, which they probably weren't before realistically, uh, obviously because he wasn't, but... Um, you know that, that, that's going to be a tough challenge for him if, it, if he's not getting those big wins against the top guys. It's always harder to kind of generate those big post points totals like he has this week. Men's tennis is strange though with the rankings because you get guys who you know they're they just you know they're going to the top five, top ten, top five in the world all the way through. Zverev, Tsitsipas, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray. It was, it was pretty certain, but then you get these guys who. I know from juniors and from challenger, futures and challengers who they look good players, but you don't think they're going to turn into what they are. And I do Berrettini as that. Like Berrettini's now a, a, a justified, veritable top eight in the world player. Yeah. And he was he was kind of just hanging around for a few years. He, and then even even a year ago, we kind of mocked him that he had this, he was in the top ten and but he never beat anybody in the top ten. Mm. And that's not the case anymore. I mean, the guy makes a lot of stages of slams regularly. Yeah. Well, whereas kind of conversely, you know, Casper Ruud's probably going to be world number eight next year. And like, okay, he's obviously picked up a title here and there and, and he's he's cleaned up some points in parts of the season that we don't think are very uh, very reputable. But, you know, he's he's kind of the, the almost the opposite or, the, or where Berrettini was a couple of years ago, somehow in the top 10, despite never having achieved it. So I, I think that we're also, we have to remember only just coming out of this nonsense. Well, not it wasn't a nonsense, but it is now redundant. The frozen points. You know, Roger Federer, I think, has played 19 matches in the last two years, and he's still world number 11 or something absurd. Um, so uh, we are still having this kind of recycle from from all the the frozen. Okay, so so firm numbers. Calvin, you're going like 15. Is that what you're saying? 15, yeah, I think. 15, James. I. I think more like twenty-one. Yeah, I was gonna say I was gonna say twenty-two. That's oh yeah, of course you were. Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just but maybe maybe I'll go the other way just to be fun. I'll say seven. Nineteen. You well, say I'll, seven. I'll go the other way. I'll go the way. I'll go way up. Why not? Because I think Did you say seven, seven or seventeen. Seven. I'm going up. I've, I've wow. changed my mind. Because I wanted right. to be fun. We've got to have a bit of a difference here. And I was genuinely... Oh, sure, yeah. George has done a brilliant hedge here. He's picked, <laughs> he's, picked, he's picked two different numbers and said that he's only picked one of them to, to create, a bit of, create a bit of fun content. Unbelievable. I, um, I think, you know, with Federer and Nadal, I think they'll drop out the, the top 10 now. That's my kind of theory long run. Th- I don't think Nadal will drop out the top 10. He's got 2,000 points I'm straight off the bat. It. I'm, I'm, well, maybe I'm not sure he's. I'm not sure he's coming back. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. He could play one tournament all year, and he would still be in the top twenty. I, I don't think. I think he's far from nailed on winning the French next year. I don't yeah. think that's certain by any stretch. 
I, I'm I'm just you know what I've I've been around long enough. I'm never betting against Rafa Nadal on the French. I, I wouldn't make him favourite for the French next year. Who would you make favourite? Uh, probably Djokovic. I'd say team seems reasonable. Well, let's hope. Maybe. Well, who did you say as well? So I'm hoping for teams resurgence as well. That yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we're all hoping for teams resurgence. Just. I think in terms of the rank, in terms of the rankings, though, there's there's certain players who I think will come in the top ten next year. Like I think I I would expect Alcaraz will be in the top ten. Sinner mm-hmm. will be in the top ten. Um, Felix. I, I always think Felix is going to come in at some stage. Chapo. He seems to keep climbing the ranking without actually winning anything ever. <laughs> Well, um, if you get to loads, of, if you, I mean, you know, we criticise him for not winning titles, but he does lose a lot of finals, which does yeah. still get you lots of points. So I suppose, yeah, I mean, he's already like up to, I think he's a twelve in the world at the moment. He's going to go up to eleven next week. So, um, yeah, exciting times, nevertheless. I kind of feel like we're into the next next gen now, um, and Jensen Brooksby's time has finally arrived. But more on him perhaps in a in a couple of weeks. Um, there is, of course, this huge kind of good feeling around British tennis at the moment. Calvin, you're you're calling in from the, the National Tennis Centre where you're working with Luke this week. Um, Ka- Norrie is now the British number one, uh, and we think he is better than certainly the current version of Dan Evans and, and the current version of Andy Murray. I, I imagine, although you said to me earlier on WhatsApp that there's actually not many people there at all because of the time of year, but I imagine the feeling from coaches and from officials and stuff is, Everyone's pretty pleased with themselves at the moment in British tennis. Um, yeah, I'd say so. No one more pleased than the people at the LTA who, no, I don't mean the coaches in that, who patted themselves on the back for getting a picture of Cam Norrie up um, in the entrance <laughs> yesterday. Somebody with the LTA said, well done at the LTA, when it, it was really saying, well done me for getting a picture of Cam Norrie up. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah. Is it, is, it, is it deserved? Like, like, what we're seeing now with Cam and, you know, Jack Clinton-Jones, we should mention, he won a, a Futures title, his first, I believe, on, on Sunday. Um, Emma Raducanu, a few other players around. Is it is it the result of something that's been ongoing or is this just kind of what happens? Sometimes players get good. Uh, a bit of both, I'd, I would say. And, you know, I'd, I'd, some people at the LTA deserve a lot of credit for it. I think it's the, the biggest... The biggest issue in British tennis, not issue, but the biggest sort of fallacy is this idea that people call the LTA, like it's one person. And whether you're criticising it or praising it, I think it needs clearing up as to who do you mean by the LTA? And then I get it all the time where somebody will say to me, oh, well, you know, I don't know what, it depends whether the LTA get hold of them in terms of a player. And it's like that one, that doesn't really happen. And two, who who do you mean? Um, and somebody had said to me last week, like, this is, this is a classic example. Somebody had asked for me uh, a recommendation for a tennis club in a particular part of, uh, in, in Manchester. And I'd said, um, I gave give, given them the name of, of a club. And they went, well, is it a normal club or is it an LTA club? And I, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> like, um, so, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, look, there's some there's some really good people work in the performance department at the LTA. Um, and I think to different degrees, they help most of those players who we've talked about and they're pretty inclusive. Like I, myself or Luke, who I coach, don't have any involvement with the LTA, but they're very welcome in that we can come down here and practice um, at the National Tennis Centre with some of the players who who they are involved with. So, um, yeah, to a degree, they've some of the people should take some credit for it. Some of them... Who, who are taking the credit for it, haven't done absolutely anything to do with it. So, um, yeah. Just um, aside from the LTA, just wanted to uh, pick up something you said before, James. I, I'm still not convinced I would back Norrie necessarily to beat Andy Murray right now, the way they're both playing. <laughs> Let it lie, James. Let it lie to George. <laughs> I'm not convinced. Uh, no, I'm pretty much going to back... Well, OK, I'll tell you what. I'll hedge... It depends what round it's in. If it's in the first round, yeah, it's a fair fight. If it's in yeah. the quarterfinal... A one-off first quarter- round match is what I'm saying. One-off first round match. I'm I'm, right. I'm going Murray's, like, 55-45 in that, I reckon. Mm. Well, um, I suppose... See, Murray's just, won, Murray's just won the first set against TFO as well. Oh, there we go. One of the Never problems with uh, 
recording a little bit later but in the will week. Will be ranked higher next year, Murray or Cam Norrie? That's the real question. When he makes it's not the resurgence back to the top four. Stop. I, right, I'm going to ask you about Andy Murray now, since you're insisting on uh, on singing his praises. Um, he was beaten by Alexander Zverev, a match that we kind of teed up last week. Uh, he was. I, I can't remember seeing him as angry immediately after losing a match for a long time. You know, I've seen him in the middle of matches, obviously just shouting, you know, so bad, so bad, and and you know similar whinges. But he, you know, he he lost a point which he shouldn't have lost, I suppose, and uh, he he kind of just stormed off. He was furious, and you know, in the press conference afterwards, Russell Fuller said, "Oh, you played some really good tennis at the BBC." Russell Fuller uh, said, "Oh, you played some really good tennis," and and Andy just went, "Good," as in like you thought that was good. <laughs> I I thought at one point he was going to tee off and be like. You really know nothing about tennis, do you? But it was it was it was much more kind of jovial than that. Although he was legitimately furious. George, did he have grounds to be? Um, I mean, he's got grounds to be furious because he clearly really dislikes Zverev and didn't want to lose that match. Um, yeah. And I think, let's be honest, in terms of a moral compass, most of us feel the same. Like we yeah. would really have loved Murray to win that. Um, I don't think he necessarily played as well as he did against Sissipas, um, but mm. he still played a pretty decent level against a guy who's been pretty hard to topple on a hard court for a while and pushed him to two pretty close sets. So um, I guess that's starting to become the question a little bit with Murray at the minute is, is it the case that he's just going to be tough to beat, but you know you're going to get over the line against him now, which historically that has not been the case? Or is he kind of knocking on the door and now he's really close and one win will turn it in Murray's favour and then suddenly he will start winning a lot of matches again. Um, you know, I, I've said it the last few weeks, I've been really impressed with his level, but there does come a point where you need to start converting against some of these top guys to kind of keep that aura. Um, and I still think Murray does have that aura against a lot of the players out there, but it, if you're a top 20 guy now playing Murray you're expecting to come in and win that. Um, but a couple of wins, I think that can change quite quickly. And he's playing well enough to start scaring a few more players. Um, so, And I'll tell you an interesting stat as well, because Calvin mentioned he's just beaten TFO in the first set. Um, it's only the second ATP level tiebreak that Andy Murray has won all year. Um, Crazy. Which, which, you know, for a guy who I, I suspect has an extremely good historically tiebreak record... Um, I, I can't back that up immediately, but uh, just kind of going on, you know, we we kind of all agree that he is one of the best matchup players around. Um, Calvin, this kind of is what well, we're not where we thought we might be, which is a year ago we talked about what happens if Andy Murray is still slugging away at challengers at the end of 2021. He is instead kind of slugging away in the early rounds of, okay, Masters tournaments and you know, similarly, a 250 in San Diego where he got to the second round and lost to, to Rude, and, and we'll see what happens in Antwerp. This represents progress, right, where we are now. He's still trending upwards to want to use a horrible sporting cliche. Yeah, he's better, isn't he? I mean, I think he's still... It's difficult to gauge, really, because I think he's probably 5% off where he wants to be, but that's a difficult 5% as well. I think he's he's got the capability to do it, but I think I said last week, I still think he needs to... The thing he's lacking, I think he needs to get more free points off the ground um, yeah. and make more first serves. Um, and I think particularly on his forehand, he needs to make... He just needs to get more free points off, off forehands, which he's not doing at the minute. There was one early on in... Really early on in the match with Zverev where he had like a short forehand and he sort of tamely hit it in the net. And I think if he's if he's going to take that next step, which he can, he's got to start cleaning off those mid-court forehands. You don't need to be like, uh, I guess, like Stan Wawrinka and hitting forehand winners from behind the baseline or, or Kyrgios when he's on form. But I think anything that falls mid-court, he needs to clean off. And at the minute, he's not doing that. It's funny, we kind of like talking about like his clear progress. And then obviously the... The most obvious uh, tracker of progress is the rankings. He's just dropped fifty places this week, so you know it's, it's quite. Yeah, so a... it, it, I believe that's because 
um, the tournament he's playing this week is a week later than it was two years ago when he won it. So he's just lost all those points, which he's now sort of semi-defending um, at the European uh, Open in Antwerp. What I was going to say as well is that I think I'd love to sit in a parallel universe and look at Andy Murray try and go through Cam Norrie's um, draw this week. Like, just to see what level... Is he at the level to take advantage of that? Because at the minute, it seems to me he's kind of going two or three rounds and then facing someone you wouldn't give him a hope in hell against, um, mm. really. But I look at Norrie's draw this week and I think I'd, I'd give him a good chance in a lot of those matches. And this is the thing, the problem with the ranking we're talking about with Norrie now. That you he's don't get that draw because he's a wild card draw. every week. Yeah, exactly. And that that that's kind of a, you know, what's that word? Catch-22 that you're just kind of yeah. praying he gets that one week when he's also fit because he's had draws that have looked okay and then he's had an injury problem. But, but this is the thing as well is that, and I always think this when when we're talking about Andy Murray is he's had all these conversations with himself or with his team and, and he's just as frustrated and, and it just as kind of, and you can kind of see it, I think, you know, in those moments of anger and frustration when he just thinks, Oh my God, like I'm totally good enough to do this. I just need, I need three months where it just, nothing goes wrong and I don't lose my shoes or wear the wrong shoes or, you know, get injured. But this is the reality now is that, He's what? He's 34, I think I'm right in saying. He's the same age as Djokovic, isn't he? He's 34. He's got a metal hip. He's fit as a fiddle. He's so lean, but it, it is just you're going to pick up injuries along the way, and that's that's just the reality of it. And hopefully he can kind of... And he is an extremely resilient guy. We know that. It's, it's, it's painted on everything that he does. But hopefully he can find a mindset that isn't oh my god this is frustrating and and is more like okay this is going to happen and we're just going to keep going and i'm fairly confident that he will off air george is incriminating himself in all sorts of ways but because i'm editing this i'll be very kind and leave it for uh maybe for a podcast extra one day when when george needs to be cancelled um the other final uh, over in indian wells of course was between victoria azarenka and paolo bedosa uh, two women who've had really spectacular years. Uh, Bedosa has kind of earned her way into WTA race contention, a potential spot in the WTA finals uh, in Guadalajara, as they are now, which, well, we'll see how many people actually turn up for that. I suspect that those who don't have the uh, benefit of big prize money cushions, i.e. Ash Barty, I think everyone else pretty much will be turning up. Uh, George, I know Paolo Bedosa is someone you've picked in your fancy team a couple of times this year, I think I'm right in saying and therefore have reasonable confidence in. Uh, so not a surprise to you that she is now a 1,000-level winner. Um, no, not a huge surprise. Um, probably more surprised it's on a hard court. I think she's a really good clay player. Definitely picked her at the French Open. She's in really good form there. And to be honest, I think she probably would have won this year's French Open had it come after this result. I said yeah. she lacked a little bit of you know, she was still kind of relatively new. She'd had a decent result against like the Madrid Masters semis, but it had been a bit of a like a burst out at that. Um, so I think that kind of, and, and that's true of a lot of players in that draw, like Coco Goff, even Sakari to a degree, um, you know, had that come around now with that experience behind them, would they go on and win it? I think they'd certainly have a, a much better chance. But um, yeah, I like her. I think she's a really good player. She's a good fighter. Um, got a lot of quality. I think she'll be, a pretty serious threat of the French Open, um, particularly given we're in kind of days where Halep's kind of not really impacting on slams so much at the moment. Um, she was kind of my go-to clay court grand slam pick for a while. She kind of seemed the best player on on that surface. Um, Barty's obviously still pretty handy on it, pretty dangerous. Um, but I, I think she'll be a, a, a really tough player to be uh, on clay next year. And... Yeah, it was a good match with Azarenka. Um, probably as good a women's final that I've seen this year, I would say. Pretty dramatic at the yeah. end as well. Um, so, yeah, good, good stuff for her. Yeah, she tried 7-6, uh, 2-6, 7-6, dominating that, that final tiebreak, winning it 7-2 to seal the title. I mean, a word as well for Victoria Azarenka, who, 
you know, I think it's her third final of the year, or certainly of the last 52 weeks, second final, I beg your pardon. Um, and she's kind of, you know, she's come back. She's obviously now mum, back in tennis. Uh, I kind of, you know, she feels like a, a name from a different era, if that makes sense. I mean, I know she is 32 and obviously has been, you know, she won a Grand Slam in 2012. She won the Australian Open for the first time, I think. So, you know, she obviously did, in that sense, come from a different era. I mean, Calvin, you're someone who remembers lots of different eras. For me, it's just this one and the last one, quite frankly. Um, nice to see her back and and also to see someone, you know, there's lots of new, interesting faces in tennis. Nice to have some old, interesting faces too. Yeah, she's a stranger, isn't she? Because she's had a few, she had a couple of spells out uh, where she didn't play so much, but she's she's phenomenally intense. She's a phenomenally... Um, competitive person um am i right in saying you spent some time on court with her at wimbledon yeah we practiced with her uh, for a session and it was quite interesting to see because as i remember the court was overbooked um i think there may have been five or six people booked for the court but there was no <laughs> question as to one of the people who wouldn't be stepping out and would definitely <laughs> be practicing um Thanks. she absolutely took charge of it and Basically, didn't even give didn't even give the other players any option. She was like, <laughs> "You three can sort it out between yourselves. I'm practicing now." Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, and she's just phenomenally intense, but also she was really nice. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, she's just a good player. I think that's the yeah. thing, and probably uh, she was the one player as well who, I guess, her and Kvitova were the player who. Post the two Belgian girls, post Halep and Kleisters, Kvitova and Azarenka, and two who Serena, sorry, uh, Henan, sorry, yeah. Uh, Kvitova and um, Azarenka were the two players who Serena didn't want to play in her peak. Um, they were the two who you would have given the biggest chance of beating her. It was never, uh, it was never Sharapova. She absolutely mm. cuffed Sharapova every single time. But um, I think those two, I think Azarenka in particular, was every time she played Serena, she 100% thought she was going to win. Didn't always pan out that way, but she was never in, she was never intimidated by Serena. She's just a good, good tennis player. Yeah, interesting. She she beat Serena, of course, at the US Open semi-final, which, you know, in 2020, which is obviously the latter era of both of their careers and both as mothers, but it was kind of a... A throwback matchup, but yeah, as you say, I think she beat Serena five times, and all apart it, apart from that most recent one, they were all in finals, which I think is very significant. You know, she's someone yeah. who clearly, as you say, very intense and a hell of a competitor. Um, I think she's potentially up inside the top thirty now. Yes, yeah, twenty seven, twenty six in the world. Um, and I saw someone interestingly point out on Twitter the kind of the matches that she's lost this year. Like, she's lost very few easy matches. She's either pulled out injured and, you know, we should say she's she's had, I think, five walkovers in the last nine months or so. Um, but she's also, you know, only really lost to either form players or, like, the top seed at the tournament she was at. I'll make my, my favourite point I make at this stage of the year anyway, that forget the rankings. I'm pretty sure she's, like, top 20 in the race or something. So, you know, that, that, that sums up she's having a really... Really strong year. Well. Uh, she is. She's literally twentieth in the race. Yeah. So yes, a whole seven place gain there. Um, but yeah, she's 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 not in the race. I would humbly suggest, uh, as pretty much you've got to be because also the WTA finals is a week earlier than the ATP finals. So like, it, I think there's only a couple of scoring weeks left, and I don't think she's gonna. Pretty, um, What's that? Be a pretty good race though. The women's one, I think, it looks pretty pretty tight and exciting. Yeah, I mean, so we kind of talked about it briefly a couple of weeks ago when they announced they would be in Guadalajara up at altitude um, and with pressureless balls, I think I'm right in saying. Um, and Calvin gave us a fascinating explanation of what that means. Uh, and yeah, obviously there'll be no Barty and no Osaka, which I think means that anyone in the top 10 in the race will make it in. Um, Savalenka, Krajikova, Pliskova, then probably Svjontek, Sakari, Muguruza, Bedosa and Jabur, I mean, that's pretty tasty. And I think what's interesting as well, and, you know, correct me if you disagree, is that it, there's not a lot of boring players in there. And I, I hesitate to call any player boring, but 
There have been periods of women's tennis when it's not been exciting to watch. There are a lot of girls in there who just absolutely batter it kind of unashamedly. And I, I, well, I don't know. I'm a pretty simple bloke. I like people hitting the tennis ball hard. So maybe I'm just old fashioned like that. But uh, yeah, I think it'll be a, a fun week in, in Mexico. I believe November the 8th they start. Sorry, George, you look like you're going to say something. I, was going to say, I think if, you, if you're picking your dream WCA finals, I'd be trading a few few bigger young names in. So I'd, I'd want, obviously, you know, Osaka's probably not going to play, but you know, you'd want her there. I'd like Goff to start getting there. I think that'd be a yeah. good one. Obviously, from a British perspective, we'd love Raducanu in there. Um, mm. And Leila Fernandez, I think now we want to see kick on and kind of come in. I think that that sort of little group would be really good going forward. But yeah, I agree. I, I like I like a lot of the players in there. I like Sviontek. Sakari's really earned it this year. I think Badosa, if she does make it, will be the same. And Ons Jabor's brilliant, I think. Great watch. And first uh, Arab male or female to be a top 10 tennis player, I think. Yes, yeah, she's um, having just been told by George to completely disregard the rankings. She is now inside the top 10 in the rankings by virtue of being ninth in the race, which of course is all that really matters. Although in this case, not the only thing that matters. Yeah, she's a huge, um, and she kind of owns that as well. Like it's easy to, and I've done it a few times in interviews when I've kind of put it on people to say like, oh, you're the first so-and-so that must make you so proud. And, you know, they go, well, actually, you know, I'm I'm just the first me. Francis TFO said it to, to me once. And he said, oh, I'm just trying to be the best Francis TFO. Like I'm not trying to be, the best black guy or like, you know, the best American guy. Like I'm just trying to be the best me. And I was quite like taken with that. I mean, I'm always taken with Francis Tiffo because I think he's a brilliant bloke. Um, but yeah, it's, it's easy to put that, but she, she's quite the opposite. She's like, you know, I understand I have a bit of a role as a role model. Um, and, you know, she, she owns that. She also spews on court sometimes and kind of owns that, which I just find like not funny because it's obviously like, she's just got a bit of a weird, stomach illness and like in moments of high stress that happens but the fact that she just kind of you know trots to the back of the court has a little vom trots back on uh, i respect as someone who has thrown up on the sporting pitch on multiple occasions usually through reasons of hangover i have a huge amount of respect for it um let's move on you don't want to hear about my sporting lack of prowess uh, emma raducanu's got a trial coach and we all know how much calvin loves those uh, she's this week working f- with Esteban Car- uh, Esteban Carril. I got that, got that right. Um, Calvin, I suspect that she's been working within a few courts of you, which means you might have had a front row seat for for some of it. But I, I know also you'll know him from his work with Joe Conta. Um, you know how how does this relationship potentially pan out, however long or short it might be? Um, I understand the trial is a week. Um, and then see how it pans out from there. Um, yeah, I'm told it'll be interesting because their personalities might not, um, not I'm not saying might, might clash, they're, they're two different personalities. Esteban Carril is quite a sort of chilled out person. He's experienced, he's calm, collected, doesn't show much emotion. And I think on court, Emma does show quite a bit of emotion and... Mm quite um, fiery in practice, I think, and that kind of thing. So it'd be interesting. Can that, can that work? Can you can can it work to yeah. have a coach and player who are very different? Yeah, it can it can absolutely work. It can give some balance and a nice contrast a lot of the time, I think. You don't most of the time I'd say you you wouldn't want it's probably ideal really. It's whether it's whether there's a maturity on the player's point of view to understand that, I think. Um whether they can can see that and whether it works. You can also it can mean that there is a chemistry there. It can mean there's a bit of yin and yang um, with that, you, you know, but we'll see how it pans out. He's He has an exceptional reputation as a coach. Um, I know Matt Petchy on a podcast earlier this year said he was the best tennis coach in the world. Wow. So um, I don't know enough I mean, that's about high praise from Petch because I would have assumed that Petch was his own world number one. Uh, <laughs> good point. Um, he... Um, yeah, I don't know enough about him myself to know how good he is. But yeah, you know, he had good success with with Conta. It's difficult. He's coached Katie Swan for a while, and that's come to an end um, now. But it's difficult to see how he went with that because Katie gets injured a lot. Um, she tends to win quite a bit when she's um, when she's fit, but she's never fit really. So um, 
yeah, we'll see how it goes. Um, I, I, as we spoke before, I think that we'll we'll have this conversation about Emma Raducanu's new coach quite regularly. I would think. <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting for the roundabout to come to Calvin Beton. I think that would be a personality clash I'd pay to watch, George. <laughs> I mean, there's been obviously loads of chatter about this this week. I know we're touching it before, but it seems like you're getting the old classic financial issues coming up in a lot of these articles now. But it is a remarkable problem that comes up. But I'd say it seems more on the women's tour from what I've kind of heard before, where the, the finances become quite an issue between player and coach, and they're a bit unhappy about what. I'm kind of, I'm always kind of surprised that it's not like flat rate plus a percentage of prize money, bish bash bosh, pretty easy deal to do. You know, pretty strong performance enhancing, uh, performance related pay. Uh, I, you know, it seems pretty obvious to me, but it's sport, I, I guess. I, I, I foolishly, it turned out, James once put that view across on Twitter, and I was swarmed by coaches <laughs> telling me, <laughs> I had no idea what I'm talking about and how much it costs and what it is. But maybe, seeing as we've got our own coach in here, what? What would you say is the range of a coach's salary um, from in terms of your flat rate, what you could expect, max sort of performance and just general other kind of costings? Like, would you be getting all your hotels paid for? You know, so to and fro and that, like, can you kind of give us a bit of an insight as laymen on how that dynamic works financially? Because it's, it's a little untalked about, I think. I think including expenses, I would think a player ranked... It's difficult to say with Emma because she's ranked, what, 23 at the minute? Yeah. and But we think she's going to be higher than that pretty soon. But for a player ranked twenty, player ranked 30 to 20 in the world, I would say they're probably looking at spending £100,000 a year on salary and then another fifty on expenses, I think is about right. It's about where it's at. Expenses but, being like travel, hotel, all that. Yeah, stuff. travel, hotels, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I, I then, but then it depends who the person is and the pathway that the person's on, and whether they've got in um, some sort of incentivized bonuses. I know that, for example, and this is a few years ago that Pete Samfras had his um, coach at the time. I think it was Paul Anikon, but don't quote me on that. I don't know if it was before or after that. They were on a percentage of winning prize money, a sort of small, a retainer and percentage of winning prize money. Then when, when Pistol Pete started winning everything, he then no longer wanted to give a percentage of his prize money away, so he just increased the salary. So it was a flat rate on salary. But um, I think the coach would, at that level, the coach would probably want a percentage as well on top of that. Um, mm. But yeah, I'd say it's around about... In turn, including expenses, they're probably spending about £150,000 a year on a coach. Is it, this might be a bit of a silly question, but is there ever a dynamic where the coach would take a lot less to be, to be coaching someone who's so good in terms of enhancing their own reputation? Can you imagine that sort of thing happening? You know I wouldn't I mean? imagine so at that level, no, because I think the coaches who those players hire are already pretty well-known anyway. So everyone knows who Esteban Carrillo is. You do have players occasionally. You do have players occasionally who will employ people who they know, and it's usually their mates who used to be tennis players um, on hardly any money. I was kind of gonna. That was kind of the point. I, was, I suppose I'm driving at a little bit is in terms of like I know it's a bit more like a hitting partner. Perhaps we've seen a few of those play people making transition for quite good players. Um, I'm thinking Sasha Bajin, probably a decent example. Um, Maybe a few others. Yeah, I mean, I guess that, for example, like, I know, I, I absolutely don't quote me on this. I, I don't know the figures. I'm, I'm guessing here, but I doubt that Tom Hill, who is Sakari's coach, I doubt that he, he might be now, but I doubt he was on £100,000 a year last year, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but he may well have renegotiated his deal there. Um, yeah. And he should have done. Um because, but you know, at the time, I think he was pre- pretty much an unknown young lad, a British coach. And I think what tends to happen is, as well, this doesn't happen on the men's tour, but on the women's tour, it happens that they'll have a coach and they'll employ a hitter as well. And so, when we're talking about that kind of money, is that, and this happens very regularly, is that they'll sack the coach and then make the hitter the coach on some sort of on a kind of a, an ad hoc basis. 
and they'll either keep the price, keep the money that they're paying the hitter the same. So the hitter is probably looking at like maybe thirty thousand pound a year plus expenses, and they may go right. I'll give you now forty, um, and you're now the coach. And the hitter tends to do that because it's more money for them. And what else are they going to do? They're on ten grand a year more than they were previously. But yeah. um, for an experienced coach, if you're hiring just an experienced coach, and it can go a lot higher than that. I think there probably are coaches out there who are on. Two hundred and fifty thousand pound a year plus expenses. Mm. It's it, it's funny, George. You mentioned you know it's something that's not talked about a lot, and we've talked about appearance fees before, which I think no one really talks about, and uh, I don't think tennis fans. I think well, I, I would say listeners to the tennis podcast, you know, knowledgeable, in-depth tennis fans, as you mostly are. I think you will mostly know about appearance fees, but a lot of other people won't know that. Roger Federer plays Haller because there's an enormous check there, whether he wins it or not. Um, and, and, you know, not just because he really likes Haller. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's true of Roger Federer at every event, pretty much. It's, it's, it's a paycheck um, and, and it's not performance based, most of it. Um, and, and I think that coaching is kind of the same. Like people don't want to talk about it because there's this sort of omerta and people don't want to pay their coaches more uh, players don't like giving as you say uh, with the Pete Sampras example players don't like giving money away they feel that they've earned it I, th- I think a lot of the time as well in Britain and I know it ha- this happens a lot in America that they'll the coaches will often also be financed somewhat by the governing bodies um, mm. like a lot of the American coaches have that a lot of the Canadian coaches have it um, Felix Algar Aliassim uh, was was just coached by somebody who was a national coach for the Canadian governing body. So I don't know the ins and outs, but he wouldn't be paying his full salary, I don't think. And um, I suppose, you know, the, there's kind of that arrangement um, in the UK with with like LTA national coaches who are sort of a resource for yeah. elite players to, to lean on. You know, when Jeremy Bates was out in Indian Wells, Emma was able to use him because because it's kind of part of the LTA deal. And you know, similarly, I spoke to James Trotman the other day who, who worked with Cam Norrie and kind of still kind of sort of consultatively on and off seems to dip in and out. But, you know, he was kind of on the same basis. So I suppose there's there's different levels as well. Like, you know, when we're talking about the different money, it's massively different. Depending well, on look, I mean, there was, we're going back to 2006, I think, 2005. Yeah, to that, maybe 2007 when Andy Murray had Brad Gilbert as his coach. It was pretty well recognised that the LTA were paying that salary and it was half a million pounds a year. That's a big money. I mean, you could argue it paid off that Andy that Andy's done all right, but you could also argue that maybe that's not all down to Brad. I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't it like to... out as a partnership. It, it wasn't particularly successful that one. They. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they were together for that long. I'd love to learn the figures that the, the super coaches get as well. The ones who almost there has got a taping extra heads on it. Like, what's a Boris Becker command? What's an Ivan Lendl command? I mean, it's just such a. I think that's a bit different though, because they were they were never they do more in weeks. I think they probably charge by the week, and they'll make an agreement that they'll do twenty weeks. Um, yeah. And uh, Becker, I guess, was with Djokovic more, but um, I mean, he had his financial issues anyway, so he probably accepted a bit less. <laughs> Yeah, quite possibly. Um, what, one final thing to talk about today. Um, I, I do want to talk about Novak Djokovic and, and vaccines and, and the Australian Open, but that story is not going away. And I think we'll come to it next week. But we have a, a listener question that really piqued all of our interests uh, from Chalky White on Twitter. Remember, you can follow us at Love Tennis Pod on Twitter and you can ask us your questions before the pod each week. Um, Chalky White says... How can more fans be attracted to watch live tennis? If you watch anyone in the top 2,000 in the world up close, the level is amazing. I can never understand how come no one watches challenges, for example. What has to change in marketing, scoring, etc., to improve this? Um, I think there's a couple of different kind of facets to this, um, one being people watching tennis and one being people watching challenges. Calvin, I know you, you voiced a couple of times this week the kind of frustration with there being almost no one in the stadium at Indian Wells for anything outside the final, quite frankly. I mean, we, we discussed last week that's partly to do with the location and, and kind of, the, you know, the, the tournament itself, but that's not a unique problem, is it? Like, there's plenty of tournaments that don't sell tickets. Yeah, I, I think that was strange last week. It was bizarre. The stadium was empty. It's the second biggest tennis stadium in the world, and it was it was empty for most of the sessions. Um mm. 
I didn't watch the final as it happened. I, I was asleep. Um, I was working the next day, but I don't know how full it was for that. I assume it was it pretty was, close. So Mike Dixon, who was out there with the mail, tweeted a picture that showed that it wasn't that full. But that was also, I think, the first couple of games of the men's final, which was after... Uh, I'm right in saying the men's final was after the women's final, which had gone on quite long. It was a very hot day. So, like, I think there was a bit of a... You know, you see this sometimes at Wimbledon as well. The stadium empties out. People go and get a beer, whatever. But, yeah, it wasn't necessarily full. So, I mean, I, I think there, there is an issue with it. And I think... I. Look, challenger level, I think, is probably a marketing thing because I do know that at certain challenges, they do get people in to watch matches. Challenges in France, they tend to be pretty um, yeah. pretty well supported. Germany, the same. I think Italy's getting that way. Um, and I know that when Luke played a final of a 15 or a 25K in France uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said there were about 300 people watching. So... Um, and that's like, that's, you know, for, for, for reference, that's like third, that's third tier tennis effects, yeah, third division yeah. tennis. So that's pretty good. I mean, that's more than would watch a non-league football match, for example, yeah. in Britain. Um, but I think in at the top events, I do think they have a problem with with the prices that they're charging. Um, I know it like Wimbledon is a fortune to go to, but I, they get away with it because people want to go. The O2s it was an interesting one because the O2 the prices are scandalous. But some sessions they'd sell out, and some mm-hmm. sessions they wouldn't. But they kind of set their their price there and. I don't know how. I think they're going to have to get get real on the prices because it can't be that people have less money than what they did 20 years ago, for example, when the stadiums were full and the, and the, the arenas were full, but people are just not going to watch tennis anymore. Mm. I mean, I you know, yeah, ticket prices are a great point. I was looking today because I was trying to work out when things are going on because I was planning at the ATP World Tour Finals in Turin. And like they sold a lot of tickets for that, as far as I can tell. Or at least, you know, it looked like that. And like the prices there are like in the hundreds of euros for like a Wednesday afternoon session. And like you're already asking quite a lot for someone to take like a day off work and watch that. And okay, yeah, it'll be some of the top eight players in the world, but it probably won't be Novak Djokovic. It won't be Roger Federer. It'll be the new guys and they might not have the same pull. Yeah, I, I also think like at, at some of these places, they've got to be realistic as well. Like the O2 got to a stage where it was disgraceful. They were, get, they, they, they were charging a fortune, it was one doubles match, one singles match for a session. Yeah. And there was that one year where like all the group matches were like love and one, one and one. And you were still going for a decent seat at the O2 because some of the seats were up in the um, up in the gods. Mostly, yeah. For a decent seat, you were probably looking at about £110, I think. Um, and you'd get one match and it... Do they really need to do two sessions? So, especially for like, say, I thought about taking my parents. My parents never went to the O2, but they're both like, they're both over 70 years of age. And if I was going to take them down to London, I'd want, you're probably going to want to watch two sessions. So mm. that's 600 pounds for three people for, for decent seats. It's like, then on top of that, you got some lunch. It's like, it shouldn't cost you 600 pounds for three people to watch a day of tennis. Yeah. Yeah, I think Georgie looked extremely tired of the world. Well, I, I mean, it, Chalky's questions, Chalky, or t- I see he's at Tezza. Yeah. I might go, I might go, yeah. it up a little bit. But yeah, I mean, the, cha- the challenger one, I'd always just compare that with how many people are watching Champions League, Premier League, Championship. And then you're going down realistically, challenger, if you think about tennis being Grand Slams, Masters, 500s, 250s. So your fifth rung is league two um but without the local accessibility so if you had a little tournament that was next to you that was running once every two weeks that you could get committed behind and want to be involved then that would be something you do because it's kind of part of your local community but watching challenger events that are flitting around the world changing time zones you know as a serious commitment like i think you're looking at a very and that's when you're just comparing one sport you know I like watching football as well, but I can't watch you know, all the non-league matches as well as Champions League and then still watch tennis. And then, you know, So you have to pick and choose. So that's always going to be a pretty tough sell. Um, but I think the, the most interesting point he does make is about like getting people up close and seeing the difference. I've seen so many people I know who say they don't like tennis. It's boring. And it's because television doesn't sell it well enough. It, it really yeah. does not capture it. And those same people, they go to Wimbledon and particularly this year when it became this open online thing where anyone could go, 
you know, I think that as a start is a really big thing in this country. All the people who wouldn't have been that interested before but thought, oh, it'll be a fun day out at Wimbledon, you know, go for a, a boozer for whatever. They went there and they're like, crikey, they're amazing, aren't they? The tennis is actually so much better than you think on the TV. I actually really like yeah. that. And it, so again, and that comes into Calvin's point about the price because if you're not getting people in up close to look at it, it's all very well at being on the BBC and we see Wimbledon does decent numbers on the BBC. But if you had more incentivized things, you had more, you know, I've said it before, kids' days at Wimbledon, for example, similar, you know, that sort of incentive where you get young people close to this sort of level, they'll be inspired because it's incredible. And that's why we all yeah. love it as well. It's such a difference being there compared to on TV. And I think the one thing that we pretty much all agree on is that they don't need to reinvent the wheel. I mean, I know that we've discussed before how there are maybe too many dead points in um, in tennis, like, or dead games, sorry. Like, you know, probably up to two all, three all maybe, you could say, is unnecessary. So if you make sets, like, you know, first to four rather than first to six, I think that that would... Um, that would change things and and you know make it make every match five sets but first to four or seven in a grand slam i think that would improve things yeah and you know there is a general uh, this is a bit more uk focused but there is a general branding problem with tennis as a sport that as calvin will tell you it isn't really true you know what people's perceptions are of tennis you only have to look at you know gary neville coming out uh, what was that story you know what i mean where him and uh the mayor, uh, and yeah, you know, they came out and called it all that sort of thing. When actually, that that's quite far from the reality in terms of people who can afford to go and play tennis all the time. You know, there is this obvious stick to beat tennis with about it being too outrageously priced, which is Wimbledon's narrative. Yeah. Um, so you almost know, almost every individual sport at professional level is like skewed towards people with major resources because that's like the inevitability of individual sport. It's generally not very well funded or very efficiently funded. And, and that's a whole different conversation. But that, so that's part of the reason I think you have this like perception problem, because it's quite easy to throw a lot of money at a kid, at one kid, and who is quite good and, you know, succeed. Um, whereas in team sport, it's a little bit different. So there's that problem. There's also the fact that Wimbledon, I think, leans in and plays to the posh thing like it's part yeah. of the brand you know that they don't want to get rid of line judges because they're sponsored by polo ralph Lauren and they wear those natty blazers they, they they are sponsored by stella artois they sell strawberries for 18 quid or whatever it is you know the whole wimbledon brand is based around like bespoke kind of poshness for want of a better word so you know that's where that perception problem comes from i think I don't think it exists in other countries. I don't think it holds up in terms of participation. I know Calvin said that before on this podcast, that the people who play tennis overwhelmingly are not upper middle class. You know, the, the, that's just the the reality of it. So, yes, there's a perception problem. I don't think it stops people going to watch tennis. I think it's it's a more basic problem than that. I think it's get, winning, the, winning the fight for eyes. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's totally that. I've said before, I've coached three national champions and they all lived, two of them lived in council flats, the other one lived in a terrace house. So it, it's it's an, it's a fallacy that it's a posh sport. There are, like James said exactly, there are certain elements of tennis that play up to it being a posh sport, um, but it's not. There's some really good things going on in London now, I know in inner cities, um, where, where, where there's a lot of tennis players, a lot of young kids playing um, and I think it, it is different in other countries because, like in France, it, it's a culture thing in France. So people in France and Germany, people go to watch tennis on a Sunday afternoon. They go to watch league matches. That's that's what they do. So the, the tournaments in France and Germany will always be well supported. But I'm not sure how you create cultures in other countries that don't have it. What one very brief final point because I, th I think what this conversation showed is that how many facets there are to this, but just one very last point on it is like, it's, I think there's still an issue with tennis of how to watch it. Like, where is hmm. it? Is it advertised enough? We all know it's on Amazon now, but before, you know, it was on Sky Sport, it was on BT Sport. There was so many different packages you needed. And now it's fairly like invisible on Amazon, I still think. Like, I don't think. It's quite hard to find. Hard to like, find. Like, we all know where it is and it's like, 
oh, what? Why can't I just what? It's not easy to find at all. Um, if you're also on on that very quickly, if you're if you're a sports fan, I know that I like to switch between sports. If there's some cricket on, remember that was that great day with the Wimbledon final and the cricket World, World Cup. Cup. And you were constantly switching between the two. You can't do that with Amazon. You come out of Amazon, you've got to spend another three minutes getting back, getting the tennis back on. And and the other thing I would add on top of that is that and this is more of a problem coming towards the end of a big three era is are there enough big matches to be advertising every week? You know, is there the build up to a week? It's because it's, you don't know who's going to play. You don't necessarily have these big matches now what's going on. You know, I, I still think tennis has a problem in terms of how it brands a week. Like, why should you watch this? You know, it's Man United playing Man City this weekend. That's a huge derby. You understand why that's big and why it's interesting. You know, United are crap at the minute, but they keep turning over City. You know, that's the narrative. I, I still think tennis struggles to build that picture um, in terms of how it sells itself. And it's a lot harder, don't get me wrong, but I think that that's an issue that would change. For example, if they all played in England every week, and I've said this would ever happen, and had the Premier League of tennis where you had Djokovic playing Nadal 10 times a year as part of a fixture list, that would be a much easier sell than them trotting around the globe and well, why are you tracking this? Why is he not playing? I'm not interested in him or whatever. It's on at ludicrous times. You know, is it a harder thing to like sell as a product? I think in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're absolutely right. The the tennis calendar. I mean, I I barely understand it. Um, and appearance fees come into it, and ranking systems come into it. The race. Thank you so much for the question, Chalky, because um, it, it is a massive topic, and we will probably over the off season do a, a whole podcast on it, and we'll you know we know lots of tennis marketeers and people who run tournaments, and we'll talk to them as well because. You know, I know that lots of people have ideas of how to fix this and, you know, no one's right and no one's wrong. So I think we're willing to listen to all of them. Um, thank you so much for joining me, lads, as always. Uh, he's been George Belshaw and Calvin Betton. I've been James Gray of the I newspaper. Um, do give us a follow on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod. Leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast. And we'll see you next week. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.